today's episode, we discuss the murder of Troy La Fiera and Smelly Bob, known as Robert Black. You are listening to Bad in the Boondocks, baby. Bad in the Boondocks. Bad in the Boondocks. People put it down, but what you're supposed to do in a small town. Bad in the Boondocks. Bad in the Boondocks. Lord, have mercy, can't help being bad in the Boondocks. Hey, and welcome to Bad in the Boondocks. As always, I'm one of your hosts, Stan. And I'm Drew. And as always, we're super glad you're here. Howdy, folks. And we have a new patron. Her name is Emily LaFink. And, and that is not I how hope you pronounce that's how you say it, or else I just butchered it. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, and but... we are sorry. Let us know. You, uh, you know, spell it out to us. I mean, yeah. But. We appreciate you becoming a patron, and we hope that you enjoy all of the benefits that you receive from being a patron. Definitely. And if you want to be on the cool wagon. <laughs> the cool wagon? Yes. The party you, van. The party, the party van, van, yes. Then you need to go check out Patreon. Yeah, be a part of our hippie club. Yeah. <laughs> Redneck hippies. <laughs> not that much. We use coon's tail for. No, we do not. <laughs> I'm wearing We're my not, coon tail. We are not that redneck. We don't actually go out coon hunting. But um, you got anything else? How about um our emails? Yes. My email is Stan at. Badintheboondocks.com. Are we really doing this a competition again? No. You <laughs> and, can and also reach is, Jabru no, I've at, got it. Bad at, Drew the Bo- at badintheboondocks.com. Or you can reach us at badintheboondocks at gmail.com. Yeah. Also, follow us on Twitter. It is boondock, bad boondocks. Bad, at bad, bad boondocks. Yep. But just look us up. Yeah. Um, Instagram, I'm not sure what that Instagram, is. Instagram, just look Is it up. Boondocks Bad in the? Boondocks, I'm pretty sure it is Boondocks Bad in the. Mm-hmm. But just look up Bad in the Boondocks. And Bet you don't know who set those up. I did. And Facebook, it is Bad in the Boondocks. I know, but I set it up, but you can't, you can't control what your, right. what do you call it? Mm-hmm. Username is? No. You can control what your username is. You can't control what your, like, boondocks bad in the, you can't, I don't know how to control that. Okay. Well, um, um, also, we're going to have some exciting things coming around. I'm I'm talking to um, some exciting people, some (laughs) authors, some TV writers. We're going to have some guests on this show. Yeah. We're going to be high flying. Mm Mm-hmm. High as a kite. High as a kite. Mm-hmm. With no wind. (laughs) But, um, all right, please, please, I'm begging you, and I will beg on my knees, just really on my butt cheeks, sitting in the chair, but (laughs) please rate and review us and subscribe. Five stars us. 
We had a few reviews this week, and we do appreciate those. They were good. All right. I think it is Drew's turn to go first this week. It is, is that true? Yes, that is true. I'm well, glad since that, you noticed that is it. true, what you got for us this week? Well, I'm going to be doing the murder of Troy LaFiera. Oh, fancy smancy. The LaFiera. Really. Yeah, not really. <sighs> It all began in Sunbury, Pennsylvania, November 12th, 2013, approximately 11.45 a.m., when a woman looked out her window and saw a man lying on the sidewalk outside of her house. She then called police once she discovered the gruesome body. Police. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> yeah. Police showed up and see that he had been stabbed over 20 times. There was also ligature marks around his neck showing that he had also been strangled. Up under the body they found black cable wire which it appeared to have been used to strangle him. Police felt that there was more to the story than than just a botched robbery. Turn your phone off Stanley. (laughs) Um The city was pretty small, and murders like this never really occurred. There was no identification on the body, but investigators did find a cell phone that was recovered next to the victim's body. I was doing sound effects. (laughs) Yeah, sure you were. This made it seem like the killer or killers wanted police to find the cell phone or else they would have taken it. Or it dropped out their pocket. Or they just it's didn't see his it. his cell phone. True. Why would they not have taken his cell phone? That is a crucial clue. It was the dead person's cell phone? Yes. Why would they have not have taken it? I don't know. Well, unless I called And them why would they have left the cable wire? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe they had to go I potty. I don't know, and it never specifies how why they did that but investigators examined the cell phone back at the station but of course it had a passcode on it then in the middle of trying to unlock the cell phone colleen lafiera called in frantic saying that her husband had been missing oh ma'am he's no longer missing wait a second the discovered body and the husband of Colleen was 42-year-old Troy Lafiera, and they lived in a neighboring town of Sellins Grove. They didn't tell Colleen about her husband's murder in person, so they headed over to her house and told her about her husband's death. What? What? Read that again. They didn't... I mean... <laughs> they didn't tell about... Over the phone. Oh, okay. So they headed over to her house and told her about it. Oh, God. Told her about what was going on. Colleen told police that she last saw him eating with his parents for dinner, so they headed over to his parents' place. His mother said that he went on the computer after eating dinner, and they found that he had been logging on to Craigslist. Oh, back pages, wasn't it? Sure. 
and there was eight different email addresses with different names on them logged into him. He was dipping the D. Sure was. When they looked through them... You they remember f- those fun dips? What? Fun dips. Yes, I do remember that, but I can't eat it no more. Oh, yeah, he's weed allergy or something. But you dip the stick, oh God, you know, you wet so it, you, yeah, and you dip it Where did it down that even come from? Because he was dipping his D. I was thinking of <laughs> dipping the stick in the powder. Okay, yeah. Um, then they found different women that had contacted him, that he had contacted for sex over the eight different email addresses. Police suspected that one of these women could have been Troy's killer. I think that whenever, if a spouse or something, if they die and then you're told and then you find out like that they're cheating on you and you never knew. That, that would, would be suck. Yep, really would. I mean, I wouldn't even care if that's, I would think that's what they get. I mean, I, I would be like you trifling motherfucker. For reals. Um, police assumed that the answer could lie in his cell phone. Finally, they got the phone open and they discovered that on the night of November 11th, Troy was texting with someone whose phone had a North Carolina area code on it. Investigators traced the number and found out it is a man, not a woman. Oh, now. They find text messages and calls to 22-year-old Elliot Barber. They decided to call Elliot's number, and no one answered, but when the voicemail ran, it was a female's voice. This is a very confused person. Could this have been the woman that was supposed to meet Troy for sex? Or could it be Elliot disguising his voice as a woman? (laughs) Yeah. This was now the lead of the investigation, finding out who that woman, who the woman was. Fortunately, that number was used to register a vehicle, and the woman that did it was 19-year-old Miranda Barber. Mm, I bet you she's married to Elliot. Miranda Barber was Elliot's wife of three weeks. I was going to say our sister. (laughs) Our sister. So married. You never do know North Carolina. (laughs) Yeah. The cops had the Barber's address because of the registered vehicle. On November 13th, 2013, police went to the residence of the Barber's in Sellins Grove, Pennsylvania. Roommates Seamus and his sister Alyssa also lived in the home that was owned by their mother, Valerie. What are you doing? What? I'm listening. (laughs) Who allowed Elliot and Miranda to live in the upstairs bedroom with Miranda's two-year-old daughter Hmm. since they moved to the area in October 2013? Okay. So it's actually been a relatively short time because only November 12th, you know. I'm saying it should just moved there and done hooked up and all that. Yeah, well, we'll get to that. They didn't find anything at the apartment that contributed to the case. Miranda and Valerie were asked to come to the police station for questioning. They both provided alibis at the time of the murder. The time the murder occurred, Elliot and Miranda were out celebrating for Elliot's birthday, and Valerie was at home watching Miranda's daughter. They both were then let go. Why don't you come on over, Valerie? No, 
dude. No. That you know how uh um overrated that song is? Not overrated enough. It is. It isn't to me. It is. It's sung way too much and people are tired of hearing it. I don't care. I know Simon Cowell is. <laughs> but then there was a huge discovery. Troy's truck was found at Susquehanna Valley Mall. I don't think you got I don't think you nailed that. I did. Susquehanna. Oh, okay. I sure did. Less than 48 hours after the murder. Text messages concluded that the night he disappeared, he was supposed to meet at the mall to have sex with a woman he met on Craigslist. At the mall, police get the sur- got the surveillance footage of that night, November 11th, and it showed Troy's truck pulling into the mall's parking lot. Then another vehicle pulled up. LaFiera got out and hopped into the front seat of the second vehicle. The car then pulled off, and the cops um, couldn't identify the driver, license plate, make, and model because, I mean, it was just too dark. Police went to other stores and got the surveillance tapes, hoping it had captured the mysterious SUV on camera. And sure enough, at the Walmart, it showed the car and Elliot sitting in the back seat. Obviously, they were not out celebrating Elliot's birthday. Maybe they were. This is how they celebrate. They didn't say how they celebrate. And every lie is just going to sound stupid because they've already caught them on videotape. They did not say how they celebrated it. And they said that they went out for... Nope. (laughs) Just went out and celebrated. And that's exactly what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. And (laughs) that's technically true, but... I mean, yeah. In the Walmart tapes, it captured Elliot going. It's always Walmart. Quit going to Walmart. Yeah. Well, he was going down aisles, getting things to clean with, like bleach and wipes. And this well, was after too- you're celebrating hard, you're gonna need something to clean up the spunk and stuff. Shut up. I'm all right. I'm all Shut right. Shut up. Yeah, sure. And this was two hours after the murder occurred. Of course, when confronted, Miranda and Elliot denied being involved. There was the videotapes against them and text, and you just know that they did it, but there was no concrete evidence to arrest them. Miranda voluntarily went to the police station to talk to police and admitted that she was talking to Troy, but it was somebody that she didn't actually know very well. She told police that since moving to Pennsylvania in October 2013, she had been talking with different men on Craigslist. She claimed she didn't offer sex, just companionship. She would literally charge them $100 to $800 just to go and talk to them. (laughs) So, how believable is that? uh, A pair of lips is moving, but it ain't the ones on her face. Exactly. For $800. (laughs) Miranda said that her and Elliot were excited that Troy wanted to meet and planned to go to Susquehanna Valley Mall to make some money to celebrate Elliot's birthday. She said, quote, I really wanted to give Elliot such a nice birthday, but I became nervous about this, so I decided just to blow off the entire meeting, and instead, Elliot and I went out and celebrated his birthday. You get it? Blow off the entire meeting? (laughs) End quote. I thought she was from Pennsylvania. 
Well, she's originally from Alaska. Okay, I do not think that they have hicks like that in Alaska. But she trapped. But she travels a lot. Yeah. She said that her and Elliot spent the night at a strip club 50 miles away in Harrisburg. After talking to the police, they let her go and decided to follow up on Elliot. Of course he backed her up, but there's no way that a person's going to pay $800 just to have a conversation. But police already knew that they were both lying, and they just sounded stupid. I don't know. Email us if you'd pay me $800 to have a conversation with me. If so, we you should now. have joined Patreon. <laughs> sure. The text messages revealed that Troy and Miranda were going to do a lot more than just talk. At least that's what Troy thought. She told him that, um, she told Troy what they were going to do and how much it was going to cost for each of the sexual activities. Oh, so now it was sexual activities. Yeah. Not just talking. It was never talking. It was never about talking, and it really wasn't about um, sex neither. It was just about killing him, I guess. Yeah, but all the other people that she charged. Yeah. Did she yeah. kill those two? I guess she was just wanting to steal, steal all of his money. Well, then she'd be out of luck if it would have been me. Because <laughs> you ain't got a, I you ain't got, got a dime. <laughs> Here's five dollars. Here, here you go. <laughs> Police convinced the judge that Miranda's vehicle was used in the murder and got a warrant to search it. They found that the car had been cleaned, but they failed to clean the massive amount of blood under the passenger seat. Darn it. Yeah. hate whenever that happens. Such idiots. The blood was sent to the crime lab to be analyzed. In the meantime, Miranda went to the police station on December 3rd, 2013 and changed her story yet again. Now she admitted to the killing, but she said that it was in self-defense. She said He that was trying to stab her? <laughs> he was trying to poke her. He was trying to poke her. <laughs> She said that Troy was in the vehicle and told her to pull off the side of the road where he tried to rape her. Then she tried hard to stop him from groping her, but he kept on, and that's when she snapped. She pulled out her knife that was stashed between her seat, and all she saw was blood. She then dumped, said she dumped his body on the on her way home on the side of the sidewalk basically. what about the strangulation and tell, told Elliot what happened then they cleaned the car and went out for his birthday but that was her story Miranda was charged with murder and taken to Northumberland County Jail during her confession she said nothing about choking Troy and with the cable wires I guess she forgot to lie about that part there was a number on the cable wire that matched a store, and the surveillance tapes of the store confirmed that Elliot was the one who bought the cable wire. On December 6th, Elliot turned himself in and told cops the whole truth. He said it was a premeditated murder, and 
that he wanted to kill someone to feel what it felt like. Oh, he's just going all in. Because Miranda told him that she had killed many other people before and that it gave her some sort of power. Elliot told police on November 11th, 2013, he and his wife targeted Troy after he answered their Craigslist ad. As Miranda drove to meet Troy, Elliot hid in the back seat. Miranda told him that when she said, What if he accidentally farted? <laughs> Give us that says me. Sorry. What's that, that sm- What's that smell? Oh my goodness. Well, that's you, Miranda. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> Miranda told him that when she said, Have you seen the stars tonight? That he was... That was his cue to jump up and strangle him. Troy got in the car and told Miranda to drive until being asked to pull over. They had a short conversation. Then she said the phrase, and Elliot froze. So she said it again and again. He froze as Miranda grabbed the knife and started stabbing him repeatedly. Then Elliot joined in and wrapped Troy's neck with the wire. During the search of the Barber residence, police found a knife with bloodstains on it, the weapon that was used to kill Troy LaFiera. They also found a satanic Bible in the nightstand. Now police had so much evidence stacked against him that it was almost impossible not to get a conviction. Miranda and Elliot Barber were arraigned in Northumberland County District Court where they pleaded not guilty to first-degree murder. Miranda did have a harder life, you know, with drugs and alcohol. She began being friends with Satan worshippers and was a sexual tool who was just passed around. And then she became pregnant at 16 years old. She moved from Alaska where she grew up and ended up in North Carolina where she got a job at a supermarket. Elliot, on the other hand, was still dealing with his own demons in North Carolina. Elliot was socially awkward, and he even started attending college, but his girlfriend got pregnant, and he dropped out. Five months before Miranda and Elliot killed Troy, they met at a party. He broke up with his girlfriend and gave her all the rights to the child. Elliot and Miranda then moved to Pennsylvania, and took Miranda's daughter with them. While in custody, she claimed when she was in the satanic cult, she killed more than 22 people. I think she's lying. In Alaska, Texas, North Carolina, and California over six years. Police found no evidence to support her claims. Miranda and Elliot got out of the death penalty by accepting the deal of second-degree murder, and they both got life sentences. Without parole or with parole? Without parole. For second degree? It might have been with parole, but it didn't say that. <laughs> oh, you didn't look. I was testing you. It may have said, I mean, I don't... I feel I like could, I they were it. just pure trash. They were. I mean, they're, they're the type of people that... I mean, you, you know, you just pass by like a ruggedy neighborhood and you'll see them standing outside with all their... With dirty feet and flip-flops yep. and a baby on the hip and a gun and, 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 uh, and a dirty tank hip. top. 
and a, a dirty, dirty tank, tank top, top with short and shorts, a baby on the way, and a tattoo sitting right here on right, the thigh, on the, right up at where ass is. Yep. Mm-hmm. Of somebody's name. Yep. That's exactly how it is. Yep. Okay. Well. What'd you think? I just told you they were pure trash. I felt like they were. I mean, it was a little dirty what they did. <laughs> More ways than one. <laughs> All right. What are you going to do? Well, I've got, oh, Smelly Willie Bob. Smelly Smelly Bob. Bob. Yeah, Robert Black. Okay, Robert Black was born in Grangemouth, Scotland on April 21st, 1947. His mother was not married, which was a big taboo back in those days. Yeah. And he What does that mean? Taboo? I'm not a big stupid, no, okay. I'm saying. All right. And he didn't, I don't think any of our listeners are that stupid either. <laughs> and he didn't know who his father was. Black's mother struggled to take care of him, and she placed him in foster care when he was just a few months old. However, soon after he was put into foster care, it was a good thing because he was adopted by Jack and Margaret Tulip. Well, I guess it wasn't a good thing. Well, it was because then he was adopted. Yeah, but then he became a killer. But that had nothing to do with the adoption. Might have not have, but... Shut up and let me Why finish. did the mother not have any... Was was unable to take care well, of him? Well, she was a single mama, just couldn't take care of him, so she gave him up. Was it one child? Yeah. Of the siblings, so yeah, it's one just child. just one child. That's not that difficult to take care uh, of. It was for her. Well, she's just lousy. That's called bad parenting. Anyway... The Tulips were a couple in their 50s, but tragedy struck Black when he was just five. His foster father died, and then six years later, so did his foster mother. Oh, well, I guess it was a good thing, but that's just now a that's crap, yeah. Now that is crap. After his foster mother died, Black ended up in Reading Children's Home, and uh-huh. he lived there until he was 15 years old. Just a year after he was sent to the children's home to live, at just 12 years old now, Black sexually assaulted a young girl. Black and two of his friends attacked the girl while she was walking alone in a field near the orphanage. What? They took turns holding the girl down while each of them tried to rape her. Why was she walking in a field? Just walking. It was back in the freaking... When was that? Yeah. 50s. Okay, yeah, so that's normal. Nowadays, I meant, think they're crazy or something. Because <laughs> you no, just keep on going. people walk outside. Go ahead. Yeah, but I'm talking about like a field where everything is like growing and stuff like that. This is also not here in the United States. There are fields everywhere in Scotland and Oh yeah, there is a bunch of rolling hills yeah. and stuff like that. Quit making me sound stupid. Well, I mean, because every time, to me with stupid every time stuff. that I say something, then you just stop and then you make it an awkward I know thing. because you're interrupting in good parts and it's then stupid you make stuff. it an awkward thing and then it's like Exactly what it is. Just keep on going. I won't say anything else no, the rest of the time. Say it appropriately. I won't say anything else. They took turns holding the girl down while each of them tried to rape her. However, according to Black, none of them were able to get erections, which made it impossible for them to penetrate her. I wonder why. Well, they were. Usually, 
like 12 years old and well usually a boy like that I mean, just spring up well not for them not every 12 year old just is gonna spring up while you're trying to struggle holding a girl down and all that kind of crap that's true most 12 year olds also aren't thinking about sex well obviously they were so they this sexual assault was reported to the police but none of the boys were charged why that's stupid they just didn't care enough I mean I guess the girl also stayed at the orphanage after the attempted rape Black was moved to a different orphanage here Black said that a male staff member routinely sexually assaulted him over a two year period he said that the man forced him to perform oral sex on him and also attempted to sodomize him but he was unable to get an erection maybe it's something to do with the air because there's a lot something of, in the air and there's a lot of erectile was fun, it Scot- Scotland or was it in Sweden? Uh, no, not Sweden, Scotland. <laughs> yeah, for real. Um, Black did not bathe regularly throughout his life, and oftentimes he had a really bad odor. And beginning in childhood, he would earn the nickname of Smelly Bob. While Black committed his first known murder in 1981, he had already sexually assaulted dozens of girls by that time. According to Black, when he was 15, he got a job working as a delivery boy in Scotland. This job took him all over town, and it enabled him to fondle between 30 and 40 young girls. Oh, the delivery boy. I'm a delivery boy. Let me check my packages. (laughs) No, laddie, nothing for you. He did this for about two years undeterred, but at the age of 17, he was arrested for strangling a seven-year-old girl until she was unconscious and masturbating over her comatose body. However, even though he was convicted of lewd and libidinous behavior, he was only given a warning and no time in prison. Well, that's sick. In the 1970s, Black found employment working as a long-distance delivery driver for a company that created posters for billboards. Well, that's just basically saying, you know, just go ahead and kill anywhere. Yes, and this job took him all over the UK, Ireland, and even mainland Europe. Black brought... (laughs) Black bought a van. He used to make his deliveries, and he customized it. He hung dark curtains over the back windows, making it nearly impossible for anyone to see inside. Let me guess. It's a white storage van. It is white. Black's occupation enabled him to abduct young girls in cities and towns along his delivery route, so he wasn't automatically a suspect in their disappearances. After murdering his victims, Black continued on his delivery route, discarding the girls' corpses, sometimes hundreds of miles from where he found them. When his victims' bodies were found, it took longer for authorities to identify the girls, and sometimes they were unable to conclusively determine the manner in which they had been killed. Wow. On August of 1980, one 34-year-old Robert Black abducted 9-year-old Jennifer Carty. The girl was riding her bike near her home in Northern Ireland. After kidnapping Carty, Black sexually assaulted the girl and strangled her to death with a ligature. He then dumped her lifeless body in a reservoir approximately 20 miles from the girl's home. Less than a year later, Black abducted Susan Claire Maxwell, and she was 11 years old. She was walking in a cornhill on Tweed in England. (laughs) 
Black sexually assaulted the girl before killing her and dumping her body off the side of the road nearly 300 miles from where he kidnapped her. Now that's a little bit smarter. Yeah. Not to give him any kind of um, glory or anything. No. I'm just saying But that, that is smarter than just like two miles or, or, the, or, the, or, or the, what miles. he did to eventually get caught. Yeah. Just a year later, on July 8th of 1983, Black kidnapped five-year-old Carolyn Hogg while she was playing by her home. He held the girl captive in his van for more than a day, and during this time, he sexually assaulted her and then killed her and discarded her corpse in a ditch. Less than three years later, on March 26, 1986, Black kidnapped Sarah Jane Harper, and she was 10 years old. She was walking to a store nearby her house. He also sexually assaulted her before drowning her, and her lifeless body was found in River in Nottingham, England, approximately 70 miles from her house. God, that's such young girls, though. Yes, but five years old and... Seven years old, 10 years old. Police were determined that Caroline Hogg and Susan Maxwell had been killed by the same perpetrator, and a coordinate task force was formed in 1983. Officers from four different police forces came together to conduct what was, at the time, Britain's largest ever manhunt. After studying when and where the victims were abducted, law enforcement became convinced that the killer worked as a delivery driver. Well, they followed up on this lead by contacting transportation firms in England and in Scotland, but their efforts failed to produce the killer. Yeah, but um, England doesn't have this kind of stuff happen. Oh, yeah, but they do. There's been a few. There's been a few, but like, you know, they carry around their nightsticks. They don't have guns. No, they don't. They don't have guns. And that's, I mean, I feel like they might need to have maybe a little bit more protection. I mean, at least a water gun. Yeah. Put some hot sauce in it. No, put some vodka in yeah. it. Yeah, oh, oh, whatever you drinking guns. Uh, Yeah. <laughs> Say, no, this, this is just... <laughs> You're so ready. This is just my liquor. <laughs> this, this is just my... I'm on my liquor. <laughs> the task force lasted for nine years, and it had a price tag of an estimated 5 million euros. While law enforcement worked tirelessly to try and find the person responsible for killing multiple young girls, Black was finally caught when a member of the public saw him abduct a six-year-old child. Such an idiot. On July 14th of 1990, Black kidnapped a young girl from outside her home in Stoke, Scotland, in front of the child's neighbor, David Herks, who was mowing the lawn. Herc wrote down Black's license plate and promptly contacted the police. Incredibly, Black decided to return to the site of the abduction despite having successfully fled the scene. Such an idiot. He was stopped by law enforcement when Herc's identified his van. When an officer opened the rear door, he discovered the child stuffed in a sleeping bag, bound and gagged with a hood over her head. The officer was shocked and horrified to discover it was actually his very own daughter. Oh, my God. For real? Yeah. The police's own daughter? Yeah. Well, did he even know that she was missing yet? No. So he literally kidnapped her, Mm -hmm. hooded her, Mm -hmm. came back, and then he found out that it was his own daughter. 
Even though the girl was still alive, Black had already subjected her to severe sexual assault in that short time he had held her captive in his van. I would not want to be him with I'm that I'm surprised that he didn't beat the crap with his I would probably kill him right then and there. Black was taken to the local police station where he admitted to sexually assaulting the young girl. Yeah, that's where I'd kill him. When Hector Clark, a detective put on the task force, was informed of Black's arrest, he arranged to meet the suspected killer in person. Clark said, I mean, Clark said of the meeting, I knew it was our man. I knew by his appearance and even his smell. End quote. A little weird. Yeah. But he stunk so bad. And he just <laughs> looked dirty. Yeah, for real. After Black was arrested, searches of his van and home uncovered a number of disturbing things. In his vehicle, investigators found children's clothing, which Black claimed that he liked to wear while Dressing he up. Yep. while he masturbated. Okay. They also found a Polaroid camera and multiple hoods and ropes. When the police searched his home, they found a large collection of child pornography, including magazines, photos, and books. Officials also found 50 videotapes of children being subjected to graphic sexual abuse. Where did he find that? Black told investigators he purchased a lot of the child pornography while he was visiting Denmark and the Netherlands. Child pornography was legal in Denmark until 1981 and in the Netherlands until 1986. How? How? It was legal. I don't understand that. Approximately four years after Black was sentenced to life in prison for abducting and sexually assaulting the police officer's daughter. His trial for multiple accounts of kidnapping and murder began on April 13, 1994. The trial lasted one month and on May 19, 19... Hold on. Yeah, on May 19, 1994, Black was convicted of kidnapping and murdering Susan Maxwell, Sarah Harper, and Caroline Hogg. He was also found guilty of the attempted abduction of Teresa Thornhill, which was a 15-year-old girl that he had tried to kidnap in 1988. Black was sentenced to life in prison for each count. As the convicted serial killer was leaving the court, he complimented the detectives who had worked on the task force and... He just told them they did such a good job. Overcome with emotion, the detectives wept as Black was taken to prison to spend the rest of his life behind bars. What? They just were overcome because, I mean, he, okay. it was like, to them, it was like him saying he was guilty. Yeah. And they had worked for nine years on this. Good God. Yeah. I didn't even know that. Yeah. He had been doing this That's for nine years. That's a long yeah. time. While Black was in prison, two fellow inmates lied in wait for the convicted serial killer in his cell. I knew that that happened. And they poured scalding hot water mixed with sugar on him in an effort to remove the skin from his body. Did it work? Yes, somewhat. Not all of his skin, but yes. They then beat Black with a table leg and stabbed him with a shiv. Black's attackers were convicted of wounding with intent to cause grievous bodily harm, and both men were sentenced to three years in prison for the assault. That's worth it. I do three years for that. 
After spending more than two decades behind bars, Black never confessed to murdering any of his known or suspected victims. He died of a heart attack in prison in Northern Ireland on January 12, 2016, at the age of 68. After he passed away, a secret funeral was held just outside of Belfast. None of Black's friends or family members were in attendance. Wow. Following a short ceremony, Black was cremated, and his ashes were eventually scattered out to sea. Would you come to my funeral if I did all that? Hell no. I might come and spit on your grave. Oh my God, I know that you do that. I'd piss on it. Because you're dirty. I might even take a dump on it. (laughs) I might do all three. All three? Yeah. Really? And that is Smelly Bob. That's fair. Well, of course, yours is worse. Again. Yeah. But I didn't want to do mine such harsh this time. You know, I mean, all of ours have been so dark. So well, dark. I mean, it wasn't exactly. I mean, sure, they were celebrating his their his birthday. But, I mean, it was still they kind of stabbed the mother crapper 20 times <laughs> and, and choked him. And strangled him. That's still, I mean, that's bad. But I'm saying yours is worse because stealing with children. Yeah. True that. Yeah. Well, y'all, that's what we got for you today. Um, please, I'm like I said, I'm begging. Please leave it a review, a rating, and subscribe, and tell your friends about us. <laughs> and one more thing. Before we go, we have two podcasts that you need to go check out if you haven't already. The first one is Corpus Delecti, or Corpus Delecti, but I say Delecti. Yeah, I say Delecti. And wine and crime. But Corpus Delecti are just, they are very awesome people, just in just as people. And their podcast is also very good. It's very well researched. I have listen to every one of their episodes but um definitely go check out corpus delecti and the other was wine and crime the gals at wine and crime um they were a long time ago i that was one of the podcasts that i started out kind of listening to also and i at the time just binged it binged it yes i know that because you played it all the time. All the time. Yeah. And, and then I started, you know, listening with you because you just kept on and kept on yeah, playing it. I, I just think they're so funny. Yeah. But anyway, one day hopefully we'll get to meet them. But check out Wine and Crime and Corpus Delecti. Delecti, yeah. <laughs> As always, though, I have been Stan. And I'm always Drew. And we'll go check out time. these two podcasts. See ya. See ya. Hey, 
true crime fans. Have you listened to Wine and Crime yet? We're a true crime comedy podcast hosted by three childhood friends who chug wine, chat true crime, and unleash our worst Minnesotan accents. Each week, us gals pick a true crime topic and pair it with a delicious wine before delving into the background and psychology behind the crime. Then we share and speculate wildly about a couple of bonkers cases related to the topic. Past episodes include necrophilia, cults, crimes of passion, cruise ship disappearances, exorcisms gone wrong, all this over a bottle of wine, or let's be real, three. Listen anywhere you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Wine and Crime Pod, and check out our website and blog at wineandcrimepodcast.com. Cheers! Movies inspired by real crimes, cruise ship deaths and disappearances, crimes that shape the course of history, and crimes involving families. These are just a few of the series you can find on Corpus Delicti. Corpus Delicti is a weekly true crime podcast that takes a series approach, spending several weeks at a time discussing crime within a certain topic. Hosted by two Southern Bells, we bring you compelling stories with a hint of Southern charm. Sometimes the stories will make you cry. Sometimes you might even laugh, but they're stories you won't want to miss. Find Corpus Delicti on your favorite podcast app by searching for C-O-R-P-U-S-D-E-L-I-C-T-I and join us every Tuesday. Hope to see you then.